You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. Welcome to Climate Champions, where we offer inspiration and share essential knowledge about design in an era of climate emergency. In this series, we are speaking to innovators and changemakers who are prioritizing retrofit and reuse over demolition and new build. And I'm George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. We begin our process of architecture and deep retrofit calculations and thinking. And I have to say that we're quite nuanced in the way we survey the buildings. So we'll be measuring radiators and flow and return temperatures of heating systems, photographing nameplates of boilers, looking at air tightness, how much insulation is in what wall or what ceiling and what thickness. And it becomes quite a detailed survey. Our guest today is Harry Paticus of RAFT, Retrofit Action for Tomorrow. RAFT is doing absolutely remarkable work with primary schools in Lewisham, South London, and has grown from one person to a team of six during the pandemic. Raising awareness with school children by arming them with thermal cameras to survey their schools and challenging them to insulate a hot baked potato, Harry is training the next generation of climate champions. Before we talk to Harry, we're going to do a quick news roundup. STUCAN, the student branch of ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, had an excellent online launch for their student campaign. They recently conducted a survey which showed that almost 70% of students feel that the curriculum is not preparing them to tackle climate emergency. As of September, there were just six student climate action groups across the UK, and now it's up to 14. These are located on a lovely map on the STUCAN page of ACAN's website, which also hosts an excellent starter pack for anyone who wants to start a chapter in their school. This is an enormous step change. When I wrote about this a few years back in the AJ, the Center for Alternative Technology in Wales was the only school that I could find that was engaged with sustainability except for some of the established MSc programs. At that time, its student numbers had skyrocketed because it was the only place around. Field and Clegg Bradley also recently held an event on climate responsive design, focused primarily on urban challenges in Africa. And it's really heartening to see a practice like FCB Studios looking to Africa where there are such pressing urbanization issues and a dire lack of professional skills. This was highlighted by Peter Oburn, who advocated training a new breed of quote-unquote urban practitioners who combine architecture and planning qualifications based on a similar qualification in India. FCBS has launched a new website where all this climate-responsive design work is spotlighted, including work by emerging practices in the region. We'll put a link in the episode notes. Fato Die, working on behalf of the Swiss development agency SCAT, gave a stellar presentation on her work in Rwanda, Burundi, and Eastern Congo. 
What's caught your attention, George? Well, I really enjoyed the Negroni talk about greenwashing, which they've released now as a podcast. It was chaired by our first guest, Maria Smith. Joe Giddings from ACAN was on there, who we've had on here as well. And also speaking with Sabrina Syed, who's written a really interesting article in Architectural Review recently about greenwashing and calling out the use of the image of greenery, like trees in concrete receptacles way high up on a building to give the impression of of nature on a fundamentally unsustainable building. And greenwashing is is a really interesting issue at the moment because I think it depends on there not really being a consensus about what we all need to do to operate in a sustainable way among the profession and among society in general. And so people feel like they can get away with claiming some tiny little reduction is here or there is really significant or or giving a misleading impression about something. So yeah, I think we all need to improve our understanding of of what we need to do to operate in a sustainable way a bit more because you do hear even from people who really ought to know better some kind of quite wrong-headed statements about for example passive house and I saw that yes you uh, last night were doing a a mythbuster event about passive house Yes, I just wanted to say one thing about the Negroni event. It was excellent, and I was really interested to see that it sparked so much interest. I listened to a good chunk of it, but I have to say, I've been around and around these issues over the last decade or so, and there isn't much new to say. The real challenge is that we have to do everything on every project, and it's so easy for any person or any PR with the best possible intentions to highlight the good things they've done, which may be just one small bit of the pie, without looking at the whole picture. And that's the real challenge with this, is keeping the whole picture in mind. And the extent of the climate emergency as well, like a sort of 20% reduction in the CO2 emissions of your concrete, isn't really that great when did it really need to have been concrete in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So this event on Passive House myth-busting was extremely lively, I'm not sure we busted all the myths, but we raised a number of questions about the role of Passive House in the face of climate emergency, and there was lots of discussion, particularly in the virtual pub afterwards, about whether PHPP training should be offered as part of architectural education. I'm more of the opinion that the curriculum should teach basic building physics as a core module rather than use PHPP for that. What do you think, George? I definitely think there needs to be more in universities. I didn't really learn anything at all technical apart from enough about how deep a beam should be compared to its length that you wouldn't be embarrassed talking to a structural engineer. But I didn't learn anything about comfort or moisture. I didn't learn any of this stuff until I did my Passive House qualification. I had never even heard the term building physics until I met Bill Bordas about 10 or 12 years ago. When I was in architecture school, we did loads of passive solar and climate-responsive design, nothing very technical, a bit of structures, but certainly nothing to do with moisture, comfort, or indoor air quality, any of these things. Maybe we all need to upskill, for example, by listening to informative podcasts. (laughs) Absolutely. Harry, welcome to Climate Champions. 
When it comes to retrofit, I was very keen to have you on the podcast for a couple of reasons. Because of the incredibly detailed work you've done on your own home in Lewisham, South London, a passive house interfit of a 1970s mid-terrace, which involved, I believe, more than two years of DIY and lots of 12-hour Sundays. And now, because of the remarkable work you're doing through RAFT, Retrofit Action for Tomorrow, working with primary schools in Lewisham. You recently left Arboreal Architecture, the practice you founded 12 years ago, to concentrate full-time on RAFT. That's a huge change of direction. Tell us about that and and raft how did you get started what's it all about well thank you so much it's great to be invited onto this podcast the move from arboreal architecture to raft was not entirely planned it was really in response to me feeling that the health of the planet was in such dire straits that i really wanted to try and connect with a larger group of people and make a bigger impact so at arboreal we've been doing retrofit for about 10 years, lots of really bespoke, detailed retrofits, quite high-end residential projects, and can take two years or so from start to finish, and you can only get through a certain amount of them, and then you're sort of affecting the lives of a couple of people, maybe a family, but you're not actually making that big an impact on carbon emissions generally. So about three years ago, I became a REBA Architecture Ambassador, and I had an idea of running a workshop with children about thermal performance. And I just thought it would be really great if we could share some basic building physics with children in a really fun way. And so we developed this exercise, which I think you know about, Hattie, which yes. is the baked potato challenge, which is really one hearts and minds as an exercise. And really that centered around teaching the children about principles of thermal continuity and air tightness. And then talking about that on the scale of their classroom. What did you do? Didn't you give them each a, a hot baked potato? And yeah, and then we managed to get the head chef of the local school to, to give us 15 hot baked potatoes. And we managed to get some free insulation materials from Mike Y, which was very kind of them. So we had these lovely wood fiber and sheep's wool and cork, and we used clay and pins. And I wrote a little brief with a few basic rules about what the baked potato house or enclosure might be. And there had to be a door to get the baked potato in, obviously. So they make this model and then the baked potatoes arrive. They get put into the, the house and then we do a few other workshops. And then we come back to them a couple of hours later with a thermographic camera and a digital thermometer and work out who's got the, the warmest baked potato. And we even adjusted it for weight of baked potato as well. So there was a little bit of fairness there. But the children got incredibly into it and they all named their teams and they named their baked potato houses and nearly all of them forgot to insulate the floor. <laughs> but, you know, it's really, really fun exercise. And, and that was through being a Reba Architecture Ambassador. And because it was so successful, I really wanted to try and scale up that activity. And really the big turning point was the Lewisham Community Energy Fund. It's grant money for innovative ideas around saving carbon in the borough, reducing carbon emissions of the borough. And um, I submitted a bid for a program centered around workshops with children, but also offering deep retrofit services to schools whereby they can significantly reduce their carbon emissions and was just delighted to win it. Now, one of the conditions was that you were a local community organization 
and Arboreal being a limited company that really wouldn't work and so I set up Raft as a community interest company so we, we have no shareholders we're limited by guarantee. I didn't know quite how things were going to go but things basically have just gone from strength to strength. So what what how much money was that? That was 15,000 and we 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 it was I did about nine months of work, and we delivered about forty five k's worth of services for that. So there was a sort of large love factor going on there, but but it, we learned so much, and we ended up collaborating with so many different organisations from Ashton's Let's Go Zero Twenty Thirty campaign, which is a campaign to encourage all schools across the UK to become zero carbon by 2030. Scopes one, two, and three, which is incredibly ambitious, to um, different departments within Lewisham and we have just developed a bespoke carbon audit template for schools so that we can work with schools to create their carbon footprint. This is with a company called Carbon Intelligence who do lots of big carbon audits for companies and their charitable wing is collaborating with us to co-author this um, template and we actually just sent the first one out last night to a school so very exciting. Describe the process from start to finish with one school. What? How do you envision it going? So, the, well, so just to give a little bit of context, the first school we worked with was St. Winifred's Primary School in Lewisham. We're now engaging with another five schools. The way that's come about was through the, the Salix Public Sector Decarbonisation Fund. So the project is split into two. We have one part which is about engagement with the schools and one part which is about deep retrofit and creating a zero carbon plan for the schools. What's incredibly exciting is that it looks like some of the schools we submitted for Salix funding, public sector decarbonisation fund funding, looks looks like the first step of the plans that we've proposed is going to happen this summer. So incredibly exciting that we've already managed to make quite a big difference, quite a big impact. So in terms of engagement, it all starts off with a meeting with the head teacher and the business manager at the school and and, and probably about a two or three hour walk around with a premises manager. We then talk about how they'd like to engage with us. So we are actually adapting our process of engagement to every single school. So some schools think that we should work with year six. Some schools would like us to work with their eco committee, which is two children per class. Some some schools want more legacy, so they want us to work with the younger children. And we're we're really up for however they want to do it. And you know, some schools want everybody involved. So we're kind of being quite responsive in terms of how we deliver workshops and how we engage. So 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 then after the meeting with the head, we begin our process of architecture and deep retrofit calculations and thinking. And I have to say that we're we're quite nuanced in the way we survey the buildings. So we'll be measuring radiators and flow and return temperatures of heating systems. We'll be photographing nameplates of boilers. We'll be looking at air tightness. We'll be looking at how much insulation is in what wall or what ceiling and what thickness. And it becomes quite a, a detailed survey. And one of the biggest uses windows and it'd be lovely on every retrofit project to install triple glazing but in actual fact if there's a reasonably good double glazed window that was installed six years ago or 10 years ago and still has another 10 years of its service life left then we're building that into the plan we don't want to waste that embodied carbon needlessly just thinking in a single-minded way about operational carbon so we're trying to be quite nuanced in the in the approach we take to each school but if you imagine schools are layers of changes 
they're never simple it's you know you you might start off with a nice edwardian block but then there's all these layers of change that have taken place on them so they're quite they're quite complicated is there even an up-to-date set of plans or you have to start with that no there isn't yeah Yeah, i would think you'd have to start with a complete survey yeah and and and, you know a complete survey of a school might cost 15k so we're using things we can find at this early stage because that's what's economical you know it'd be lovely to have a laser survey of the whole school but we don't have that luxury not yet so you've mentioned salix thinking about more broadly how the retrofit of schools could be funded do we need to move past the idea that the energy efficiency works should be paid for with the money you save off the bills yeah well the great thing about the new salix funding is that it doesn't have the same criterion as it used to have. So it used to work on the the seven-year payback rule and, as you say, the paying back of bills. But now it's actually um, you have to meet a criterion of £500 of lifetime tonne of carbon saved. And so that's all based on the calculations of how many kilowatt hours you can save. And, you know, your, your, your cavity wall insulation gives you quite a good lifetime tonne of carbon saved value and so that can pay off for some slightly higher ticket items such as mechanical ventilation with heat recovery and what we tried to do was to be really sensitive to why we're working with children and why we're working with schools it's you know we're not just thinking carbon we're thinking classroom air quality as well and we're thinking moisture robustness so we managed to make it work so that we could actually deliver good air quality at the same time as getting some insulation measures and air source heat pumps in. So that was really was our focus. And it does seem that children are slightly forgotten about in the processes of adding new things to buildings. They're sort of very often done by surveyors who just say, right, we're going to put a new roof on, but they don't think about the potential impacts on children. And what's so wonderful is that when you do start listening to their voices, they come out with some extraordinary stuff and they're just, they're so clear and they're so profound. So it's sort of the process of engagement is so uplifting because as soon as you start talking about these things, they come out with all sorts of wonderful observations. Because children as well, uh, they're going to be the people who are living through the most direct effects of global heating. So to work with them directly seems to make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, I, I thought I'd mention that we've actually just commissioned a local contemporary pianist and composer to work with Raft and with uh, St. Winifred's School where we've just installed nine carbon dioxide sensors and we're measuring temperature and humidity in classrooms. So we've we've got pre-lockdown data and then we've got half-term nobody in the school data and, we, and we, then we've got kind of like five or six children, key workers data and then we've got, we've got them all coming back. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. We're going to have this really interesting profile of carbon dioxide levels in classrooms and what we're going to be doing with this pianist is that she's going to be creating some, she's going to be composing music to tell that story. Um, so we're sort of quite excited about using different media as a way of engaging the children and creating a performance. So on the 14th of May, we've got a, a Cross Lewisham online event where we'll, each of the five schools will be sharing some of their special learning and, and doing a little five or 10 minute performance each of what they've learned on this, on this plan. You're creating a new generation of climate champions. Yeah, well, we're trying to, we're trying to. And how do you, set priorities for retrofit then when you approach one of these projects? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. So I would say the first one is is retrofit ready. I'm sure you've heard of that phrase. Really, that's about saying 
is the building as it stands in a good state? Are the rainwater goods working? Are there, are there damp issues? And just getting it into a fit state to be retrofitted is already a piece of work. And that might involve repointing or it might involve re-roofing or it might involve new gutters or, or sorting out damp issues. That would be the first step. Generally, it seems to me that air quality in classrooms is very poor. And there are periods on rainy days when children don't get to go outside when if it's a bit cold those windows don't get opened carbon dioxide levels can go very very high and soon we'll have some proper data to verify that but we have anecdotally from other sensors we have in schools that the levels go really really high so i would say thinking about mechanical ventilation just ventilation in general it would be a very early early move because in Denmark, all schools have mechanical ventilation with heat recovery. The carbon dioxide levels that are expected from schools in Europe are 900 in France, 1,000 in other countries, 1,500 in the UK. You know, there's evidence to say that actually we should be keeping those carbon dioxide levels down lower. When you're thinking about funding, the steps have to be fundable. So, so obviously, we've had to meet that criterion of the £500 per lifetime ton of carbon. So we've had to work very carefully with that. And what that basically allows you, sort of roughly, is it pretty much allows you to come off the gas boiler and put in an air source heat pump, providing that you can allow the peak demand to still be supplied by a boiler. So in no cases are we doing a whole school. We're generally doing bits of schools, so a block A or a block B or, or part of a block. So a lot of it is about looking at which blocks perhaps in greater need or perhaps have worse thermal performance or have internal condensation issues where work is already needed so there might be trigger points such as re-roofing or whatever that then allows that retrofit to happen so just trying to trying to go back to your earlier question about how would you carve it up is actually different every time it's very challenging i mean you really have to see the big picture you really do. You really do. And, and you know, at the same time, you've got that tricky funding constraint. And then you've also got the really tricky um, accessibility. Timetabling of children in school. Yeah. You know, I, I heard the other day of a, a roof that was put on a local school in, in Lewisham where they re-roofed it, but the project overran into September. And had to build crash decks over the classroom so that work could carry on overhead. You know, incredible. But I think that's the reality of trying to get works done. But you see, for me, rather than seeing building as being this thing that is done to a school, I sort of like the idea that the children actually really engage with it and the staff really engage with it and they actually feel part of that process. And, and that's more than saying, put a window in the hoarding and you can look through. It's, 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 it's actually about, about them understanding what might happen way before, during the design process. And it's about them valuing what might be done, valuing the fact that they're so lucky to be able to get funding. And it's only, it might only be 200K, but nevertheless, that does a lot for a school. And if they, if they hear about air quality and they monitor air quality and they create a musical performance around it, when that mechanical ventilation gets put into their classroom, they're going to have a completely different perception of it. Yeah, and they may be willing to put up with some inconvenience. Exactly. And they may be interested in that inconvenience as yeah. well. That might provide an opportunity for site visits and for kind of, you know, reviewing progress and things like that. Um, last week, we managed to get schools to prepare risk assessments to take children down to the boiler rooms. And they loved it. And some children re were recording the sound of gas burning. But that's quite moving if you think about it. You know, we've got these greenhouse gases and, and that sound, that 
is what is going on at a monstrous scale right now all over the world to make this civilization run as it runs. And just that little moment, it was quite touching that they wanted to record that. So how big is your team at Raft now? So we're, we're six people. And what's the mix of skills you've got? It's quite a range. We've got three part threes. So they're all, they're all kind of in the deep end. You know, but they have experience, so they know I've, I've worked with a couple of them for, for a year. And we've just, um, we've got, I don't know if you know Nidhi Shah, who's a vice chair of the AECB. So she's been doing Passive House for years and years and years and knows her retrofit. And we're just about to employ a new person who's certified Passive House designer and has done the AECB Carbon Light Retrofit course. So you need these skills, you need to know your retrofit details and your thermal bridging and everything else and we're, we're trying to also transcend this as well not just make this all about the technical and the carbon we, we we're trying to create both moments of workshop joy but also moments of architecture and every time we go to one of these schools we see something that we just think ah oh, imagine if you did that so we're actually as a kind of free additional service as part of this current program is we're doing little little moments of of architecture design to just get the schools excited you know and these might be 25 to 100k mini projects but they might be about how do you lift that entrance how do you get a slightly better sense of orientation or how do you engage with a courtyard in a more in a more beautiful way and if we can do that with with high performance fabric then for me that's like i couldn't couldn't think of a, a better job really well, I think this lateral thinking that you've got, you know, approaching the whole problem and not just the carbon is, is I mean, it, it just, you've got to have this holistic approach, but you've got a particularly holistic approach, which is, which is wonderful. Let's talk about your house for a moment. I saw you present it at the Passive House Conference a few years back, and you've got a very clear graph on your Twitter feed showing the amount of energy saved by each retrofit intervention. You bought the house in 2016 and divided the work in four phases. Are you basically done now or where where are you? <laughs> I wish I wish we were. It's actually been four years of Sunday DIY work, <laughs> a little bit longer. Um, we're, we're, we're halfway through. Basically, Raft has taken up a bit more time. It's sort of eaten into those Sundays. So we works have actually slowed down. But what's been really heartening is to see the actual measured space heat demand, the measured gas bills and electricity bills compared to what the PHPP said they would be. We're actually delivering slightly under what we're supposed to be using at this step. So that's a really fantastic win that we can now, you know, we've measured everything for two or three years since we finished that step three and we're using less than, than expected. So that's, that's fantastic. Well, you've spoken about this project, your house, in depth on another podcast, House Planning Help, with Ben Adam Smith, who, by the way, is our fantastic editor of Client Champions. So I don't want to cover the same ground, but it would be great if you would briefly explain your approach and highlight the main takeaways. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I actually have to say that Raft is linked to this house. And the link between this house and Raft is my nine-year-old son. And, and, you know, and he's, he's seen Raft grow. And I keep telling him that he made Raft and he doesn't quite believe it, but he actually did because when you're an architect, I mean, there's lots of different kinds of architects, right? But 
the really good architects are the ones who like to get samples in their hands and and really like to get into the nitty gritty of how do things go together and how do you make stuff. And for me, the process of doing DIY is about knowing at a deeper level. And so I wanted to install MVHR from scratch. I wanted to see how does it go together. And you know, architects and services, you know, with the services, you're sort of your engineer's done it and you kind of look at the drawings and it's like, okay, it's coordinated, but do you, you know, how well do you really know it? And it's actually very, it's really great. So after I'd installed the MVHR here, every time I talked to a client about MVHR, I was able to say, look, well, I actually installed our one from scratch and I know exactly whether a branch system or a radial system is more appropriate for a house, depending on what ductwork routes we might take and how you might weave that through the house and how invasive that might be and what kind of fixings you might do and what builders work you might need to achieve penetrations through walls and all that kind of stuff. So the really critical part is about building up a kind of deeper level of knowledge about how you do retrofit. So having done lots of taped joist ends, it's not just that I've specified it and watched somebody do it on site, it's that I've actually done a bit of it myself as well. And so if we extend that to the insulation, we, we looked for the lowest carbon insulation we could find, and that was cork. And, and my son witnessed, so he was seven then, he witnessed a, a, a huge load of cork being delivered into our driveway. And I'm sure you've seen that when insulation gets delivered, it's actually quite large volume. You know, it goes on the walls and it all disappears into a house. But when it's the physical material, it's a big, massive stuff. And so he quite enjoyed that, that physical presence of all this material suddenly appearing in our driveway and in our garage. And he then watched me putting it on the walls. And I sort of wanted to really treasure this moment of your child witnessing you doing a, a, a retrofit step and insulating his wall. And so I had I sort of developed this idea of him producing posters. So he started to produce these A3 posters that would be quite crude bits of cutting and pasting, collage and bits of drawing and all his own work with a little bit of guidance from me. But, you know, I wouldn't draw anything. He'd draw everything and I just sort of make suggestions. And, and so he did one for, for cork insulation and he talked about where does cork come from, how do they cut it off the trees, how do they then make it into this black material and then how do we stick it onto the walls. And he did this poster and, and I said, well, why don't you take it to your class and see if your teacher will let you talk about it. And so he ended up presenting it to his class and the teacher then started to put it on the wall. And then, you know, every every two or three weeks, we do another retrofit thing. And so he did one for air tightness. We did an air tightness audit. And I got him to turn the fan on. And so he he was the kind of operator of the fan to depressurize the building as we could see where air leakage was. And then we did a, a little poster about that. And we had one with a thermographic camera. And then we had one for the MVHR. And I think it was that, you know, his enthusiasm, his class teacher's enthusiasm and this idea that by him doing these posters, the, the other children in his class could learn about retrofit. And maybe it was around that time that I thought about opening the house up for International Passive House Open Days. And then I thought, well, I think we can scale this up a bit. And we ended up printing 300 leaflets and leafleted the whole local area, inviting them around and telling them about retrofit. And, you know, and that created, it got, you know, people started to get interested. And I just suddenly thought, you know, this is really what we need. We need people to sort of, first of all, get some basic knowledge around retrofit, but also to start to get the feeling that to be low carbon or to have a high performance, low energy house, 
might be something that's aspirational. And I think that's really important that, that you might aspire to having good air quality and to having a comfortable interior and, and have low energy bills in the same way that people aspire to having a, a, a gorgeous car. And, you know, I do know that people at Historic England are doing work around maintenance and lifestyle and aspiration and trying to turn maintenance into something a bit more a bit more valued because you know we maintain our bodies we maintain our health we maintain our cars but you know do people maintain their buildings in the same way no they don't and you've said elsewhere that there was a specific issue with your house to do with overheating so did the retrofit actually exacerbate this or would that have been happening anyway and it's just when you're coming to do the retrofit that the building performance comes into much consideration and how did you deal with the issue so people that use phpp and are certified passive house designers will know about overheating and they are aware of it so when i bought the house it was on my radar and i knew yes, there's a risk that it would be overheating on, on the south side and, and at the higher level. I don't think we have exacerbated the problem through adding insulation. If anything, I think we've improved it because our neighbours have single glazing, which has a U-value of, say, 5.8 watts per metre squared uh, Kelvin, and it has a G-value of 78% something like that. So we'll actually let more solar gain through than triple glazing will. So we put triple glazing on the front and triple glazing has a G value of about 50%. So half of the energy of the sun would come in with a triple glazed window, whereas with a, a single glazed window, you've got, let's say, another 25% of heat is coming in. But we, we put these flying mullions in so we can actually open up the whole of the, the, the wall. So we can actually get the entire window opening opened up so we can have very fast purge ventilation so as soon as the sun goes down during a heat wave we can actually ventilate very very quickly and and get the internal temperatures of the house to cool down so in a nighttime cooling or sort of early early evening cooling but that wasn't enough <laughs> so um that's where um i i ended up reconnecting with somebody that i i worked with on a project for the london festival of architecture where we created a, a 20 ton toilet made out of earth and fabric just outside the science museum which was really fun it was it was a big giant installation next to thomas heatherwick actually um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and there was this this big yellow toilet that i designed as my aa final project that we managed to get funding to build the sailmaker that made that I, I reconnected with and i said you know how do you fancy collaborating on making some bespoke sails for my house and so we had actually already anticipated potential overheating and i'd already installed lugs in the walls before putting in the triple glazing so they were there ready to connect something to i didn't quite know what that something was and you know there's there's lots of different ways of externally shading you can have electric blinds we have actually just installed some electrically operated external blinds from a, a german company called warima at walter's way um, at one of the water seagull houses and we've just installed that there but here i wanted something a bit more low tech and quite like the idea of you know very manual really getting in touch with your with your building with your hands it's not just a sort of switch but i actually have to literally rig up these solar shades myself and there's a bright yellow fabric you might have seen on a tweet or something at some point looks great yeah 
Yeah, and it's cheerful, and it, it really, you know, really, every people walk walk past it, though, you just see them smiling. And inside, when it's sunny, actually, the light level is quite high in the room, but it's this sort of golden wash, so it's actually quite cheerful. You put it up and leave it up for a few days, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we didn't quite, you know, it was a bit experimental, but, you know, at, at first it took me about 10 minutes to rig it, but now I can do it in about one minute. And so when we get heat wave, we just quickly rig it up and we might leave it there for two days or three days or a week or whatever it is. But we're, yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of developing more external shading strategies. And it's funny because people still often say, but you can just put an internal blind up. But, you know, I think the rough numbers are something like you can stop about 90% if you do it on the outside compared to about 10% on the inside. Really? Wow. It's of that order. Yeah. Well, I wanted to back up for a minute and ask you about your kind of journey towards sustainable design. If you were doing a, a huge toilet outside the Science Museum as your final AA project, I see it, it goes way back. But like George, you started your career in a design-led practice, and then you founded your own practice with Tom Raymond called Arboreal Architecture. So that speaks to a clear connection with nature. So tell us about your journey and any real light bulb moments, I like to call them. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I started out with a degree in maths. I didn't start out doing architecture at all, and I didn't actually do that much art at school. So my route into architecture has been a little bit unusual. And it actually started with me being taught to paint by quite a famous painter in Plymouth, where I was doing my maths and astronomy degree. And he taught me to paint for free. And he had this extraordinary studio in the Barbican in Plymouth. And um, I would enter the studio with quite a few um, models kind of <laughs> around, um, often naked. And I would turn up and I'd be taught classical painting, tone of the tone, shape of the shape and color of the color. So I started heading towards being able to paint in the style of Velázquez or Rembrandt, that kind of quite strong realism. And I, I then had to do my dissertation and I did my dissertation on visual mathematics. So that started to sort of steer me into the arts. I then did a, an open university course called Art and Architecture in 15th Century Italy, studying Brunelleschi and Alberti and Florence. And I just basically fell in love with architecture. I, I, I just, I remember writing these beautiful answers to these beautiful questions about fenestration of the Cador on the Grand Canal and talking about fenestration and the Gothic style. And, and I, I just fell in love with architecture at that point. That's amazing, because that was also my way into architecture. My first degree was in architectural history, and I had an inspirational professor who turned me on to Renaissance Florence, where I was lucky enough to spend a summer. So then we're, what happened next? <laughs> Yeah, so then I then I thought I really wanted to be an architect. So I was actually waiting in a restaurant and painting in a tiny Methodist chapel in the middle of Dartmoor when I, I had my kind of eureka moment of, right, I want to be an architect. So then I, then I sort of had to cobble together a portfolio and um, I went to Kingston University and did a degree at Kingston. And without a doubt, my connection to nature and my appreciation for the natural world and the beauty of the natural world and the intelligence of the natural world comes from my teacher at, at Kingston, who was called Trevor Garnham. But he was an absolutely wonderful teacher and I owe a lot to him. And I often thank him for steering me on, on this course. And his teaching was more based around poetry and 
the connection with nature than a more technical passive house approach you know he, but but i think you need to hold both at the same time and i'm sort of really indebted to him for that journey and how did the focus on building performance and the passive house side of things come about for you yeah so i remember reading i think it was rem coolhouse in small medium large extra large where he where he, he talks about the architects only have 40% control over buildings or something like that. I can't remember the exact quote, but I think he shows a section of a building and he says, look, these are the bits we can do and these are the bits the engineers do. And I, I think I always had this feeling that I, I felt frustrated that I was out of control of quite a lot of what we deliver. And I didn't like this idea that I didn't quite know what a thermal bridge was or I didn't quite understand thermal performance. And I could make them look nice, but I didn't know how to make them perform well. You know, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it really is, is a fact. And, I, and I, I really wanted to try and gain more control. And, and, and the Passive House course really helps you with that. It really, it really opens your mind up to servicing air tightness, just different levels of thermal performance, be it on a, a three-dimensional thermal bridge or just sort of simple how to calculate the overall space heat demand of a building. And so doing the course is quite intense, but it's not, it's only a two-week course and you can do that, but it's actually then applying that over a number of years and sort of learning both in terms of, you know, there's there's building physics and there's buildings and, you know, buildings are really complicated and, you know, I've had all sorts of weird problems over the years that I've managed to subsequently figure out, but it's not until you do stuff and then you go back and and review it and understand it better that you can actually really start to make good you know, have a, a deep knowledge of how buildings perform. So do you think this is a failure of architectural education? Should this be taught in the curriculum in today's world? Or does everyone need to go do a passive house course after they've done their degree or while they're doing their degree? I, I, I think I'd be a little bit cautious about being too absolutist about it. I think there's probably lots of different kinds of architect out there. And, you know, I, I wouldn't try and make everybody do that. G giving students a greater command of building performance, I think, is really important. I mean, as as we're as we're entering what we could call a deep climate crisis, what could be more important? Surely we have to sort of readdress the balance in education on pool of mirrors of design, where we're doing more and more elaborate, exciting stuff that's really cool and is is highly highly intellectual, but there's a big problem and you won't be able to do that in the future if you don't sort out this problem. So I'm sure a bit of rebalancing is needed. And I know there are quite a few universities looking at Passive House. I think Bath run a course, don't they, at the university. I think it would be great if it was made available to students so that when they are interested, they can engage with it. But of course, we've got to be careful. We don't want people to just be purely in the technical world. Harry, I could easily talk to you for another hour, but I think we're we're about out of time. I have one more question for you. What would be your advice to our listeners who want to upskill in retrofit? What would you tell them? Well, I think I, I would definitely start with the AECB Carbon Light Retrofit course. It's very, very, very in detail. I think becoming a certified passive house designer, I think is, an, is a really good way of getting a much better grip of building physics. And I think having an aspiration to improve thermal performance on any retrofit project is is also a way of doing it and and you know following best practice guidance 
But I, I'm not exactly an expert in where to go for retrofit knowledge because in a way it's sort of something that's been accreting with us. We've been building it up over the years. Great. Well, thank you very, very much, Harry. Thank you. You're welcome. In our next episode, we speak to Steve Webb of Webb Yates Engineers about how to rigorously reduce the carbon footprint of projects by using more timber and stone and less steel and concrete, both in Victorian terraced house retrofits and extensions and in larger projects. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.